You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, April 17th, 2022 edition of Labor Express. On our last episode, I promised that I would have something for you this week on the tremendous union organizing victory at the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York. And I do have that with the help of uh, longtime friends from New York, uh, Building Bridges Radio. Uh, they spoke to three of the workers involved in the organizing efforts shortly after the successful election back on April 4th. And in the second half of the program, we'll hear about another recent organizing victory that has received less attention, the successful union election at the REI store in the Soho neighborhood of New York City. Both victories are adding to the sense that we are in a historic moment for possibilities of rebuilding the labor movement. Before I move on to those two stories, a brief follow-up on the story that dominated our last episode. The strike of IBEW Local 1220 at WTTW Chicago Channel 11, uh, Chicago's public television station, has ended with a new contract. I don't have a full analysis of the situation as of yet, but so far what has been publicly reported sounds like a largely concessionary contract with some wins for the workers in their efforts to protect their bargaining unit. As you heard on our last episode, the biggest concern in the contract fight for the union was protecting members' jobs and ensuring a future for unionized employees at WTTW. So much work in recent years had been deprofessionalized and transferred from the union technicians to amateurs, part-timers, etc., to the development of new technologies. Unfortunately, the new contract appears to give management even more flexibility to hire part-timers and other non-union labor to take on the work that had been union for decades. The union did win the promise to hire five full-time union technicians over the three-year term of the contract, but at least three of the current 23 uh, union staff plan to retire by the next year. The union is saying it's a fair contract in line with similar agreements at other media companies, but they also seem to acknowledge the transition away from union labor in their statement, which refers to a change in new ways of working. I would say these concessions are concerning for the future of Local 1220 at WTTW, but that is just my armchair analysis from what has been publicly reported. I hope to have more details and more thoughts from rank-and-file members on a future episode. So on to some more positive news for the labor movement as a whole. Let's start with the victory at the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, as this organizing win is truly historic, a first at this rabidly anti-union company, and if it catches fire across the country, could affect the future of work around the world, really, in profound ways, given the power and influence of Amazon as one of the corporations most significantly shaping the future of of the distribution systems around the world, and therefore all the labor associated with these systems. Our longtime friends Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg of the Labor News Program in New York City called Building Bridges, Your Community and Labor Report, had the opportunity to interview by phone three of the workers involved in the building of the new independent union, which was behind the successful union election at the Staten Island Amazon Warehouse. The ALU, or is it this very simply and direct name, Amazon Labor Union, uh, You'll hear in this interview the Amazon workers touch on several important themes. One is a topic that I've uh, covered in the past, the high rates of injury in the Amazon warehouses. 
regular listeners to Labor Express may remember our interview with Avery Bernard of the podcast The Amazon, who discussed in detail the dangerous and stressful working conditions at Amazon that lead to so many injuries. They also touch on a theme that I think is especially important to understand and take note of. While the vote count was coming in in New York, showing an overwhelming victory for the workers there, the second round union election in Bessemer, Alabama was not looking good, with the current vote count indicating a narrow loss for the union. There are hundreds of challenged ballots at this point, which, uh, which whatever way they go, could actually uh, decide the outcome of the election. And the RWDSU, the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, is alleging Amazon broke labor law a second time during this second election, which is happening basically because Amazon broke labor law uh, back during the first election. Uh, Regardless of the outcome, the fact that the organizing effort there had all the resources of a major union behind it, the RWDSU, but has struggled to win against Amazon, whereas a small upstart rank-and-file organization like the ALU has found success in the first time around, raises serious questions about the way forward for organizing these new economy behemoths like Amazon. The workers interviewed here by Mimi and Ken don't provide a really in-depth analysis of the situation. I do hope to have that on a future upcoming episode of Labor Express, but they do touch on the topic from a rank-and-file worker perspective. So without further ado, here is this segment from the April 4th episode of Building Bridges, Your Community and Labor Report, featuring the three workers involved in the organizing and the successful union election at the Amazon facility in Staten Island. Joining us now are three of the Amazon workers who created this monumental worker victory. Connor Spence, worker at the JFK 8 facility. Julian Mitchell Israel, field director of the Amazon Labor Union Tier 1, worker at the LDJ 5 facility. And Angelica Maldonado, labor activist from a huge Staten Island Amazon facilities. Connor and Julian and Angelica, How do you view the significance of this vote for union against the largest, wealthiest employer on the planet? Why don't we start with Connor and then have a discussion, the three of you. As far as this victory goes, we always knew that it was going to be an uphill battle, but that if we were victorious, it would send a signal to every worker in the country and every worker in the world that it doesn't matter how big of an opponent you're fighting. If you organize and team up with your workers, you can win literally any victory. That's just what we wanted to communicate to people and hopefully inspire workers throughout the country to do the same thing that we did, organize and demand better conditions. Julian? And I, you know, I agree with Connor. Uh, I, I think that this victory speaks to sort of a, a new wave of labor movement in the United States uh, and, and hopefully around the world. I, I think for a really long time, Unionism has become an ideological thing in itself. Uh, unions have become an organizational structure that is like actually limiting to worker power in a sense because of, of the political nature of, of unions. But I think the grassroots nature of this, the fact that, you know, Connor, the vice president, Angie, the head of the workers committee, like these are people who were truly Amazon workers and are, are stepping up to, to fight for their own rights, just take back that power. I think this is going to spark a, a, a new type of labor movement in, in the U.S. and beyond. Angelica? I totally agree with what my colleague said. It's been a very victorious chapter for us, but um, we couldn't have done it without the workers. It being that, you know, JFK 8 was such a diverse building, 
filled with about 7,000 workers, and we succeeded in unifying everyone. Well, you've won based upon a series of demands that you had, which was then carried on to contract demands. There are too, far too many to get into them in detail right now, but if each of you could take one of the demands that you felt personally brought you to this organizing drive and talk about how you use that demand to organize other workers. Connor, do you want to start that? So it's no secret. Amazon has extremely high turnover. It's 150% per year. So for, for seven, 8,000 workers um, at JFK 8, that means in a year they'll go through about 12,000 people. And it's not an accident that they set it up that way. They, like they have set it up that way. It's intentional. So, you know, one of the ways they kind of reinforce that is by limiting internal promotions. It's very, very difficult for tier one associates to, to make their way up through the ranks and get promoted. And so, the, the, you know, the average Amazon worker doesn't really stay for longer than eight months because there, there aren't really a lot of opportunities for them. So for me, I would very much like to improve the promotion policies and make it so that you know, managers are not externally hired so much. They, they are internal hires. It's actually funny because certain managers will tell you if you're a tier one associate with any kind of education, uh, you have a better chance of being promoted if you quit and apply from the outside than you do applying internally for these positions. So that's something that, in my mind, definitely needs to change because there's a lot of people on the campaign, veterans of Amazon, who have been working for a long time and were never given the opportunity to, to move up or get the recognition they deserve for all their hard work. And Angelica? That my biggest focus on for the bargaining contract would be job security. A lot of the main focus for the bargaining contract was the pay raise for a lot of workers in the building. And that's one thing I totally agree with. But what good is a pay raise if there's lack of job security? You can get a pay raise one week and the next week you're accidentally booted out of the system and can't even speak to HR about getting a job back. So that's one thing that uh, a lot of workers in the building have faced. Speaking to workers while phone banking and hearing their story about how they came to work one day and their badge wasn't working because, you know, our app, you know, deleted them out the system. What good is job security if you can't? What good is, you know, the pay raise if you can't get your job back? Julian? Yeah, I mean, I think the two things they said are, are definitely the, the prime issues. I guess one additional one I might add is, is Amazon's lack of accommodations and the fact that they, they push people out when they get injured on the job. Um, I, I've talked to so many workers who, I just got a text from someone today who slipped on oil from like a, a, a leaking thing, broke his his, uh, his back, and basically has been almost pushed out by Amazon and forced to, to quit because uh, they don't want to take responsibility for these things. They don't want to uh, have to pay uh, for better medical coverage, anything like that. And and that's just you know the tip of the iceberg. I think there's so so many stories of people who who are coming in with disabilities or who injure themselves on the job or, or whatever it is that are not taken care of by Amazon because they are just always putting profit over people every single day of the week, every single chance they get. I want to find out about the conditions that you experienced, but first pick up on something Angelica was saying. I mean, initially you mentioned there's like 7,000 plus workers. These are huge facilities, sorting and stacking and distribution centers and so on. But how indeed do you take a very disparate workforce that is being told by management constantly, what the heck do you need a union for? They're not going to do anything for you. And what are you going to do with a local union? It's not a national union. So, Angelica, what did you do 
to bring people together to vote in union? I would say one of the main things I did was be completely transparent. And at the same time, I was willing to be vulnerable. What a lot of people expected from a union was for us to just go in there and tell everyone to vote yes. But that's not what we did. We were completely vulnerable. There was times where I had to tell my personal story to many workers. My personal story being me being a single mother, dedicating my off days to help thousands of workers, and then still maintaining my job at Amazon, working seven days a week, almost 20 hours. There was a lot of days where, you know, a lot of the workers, they would question why I was doing this. I literally told them because we deserve better. Once you can convince people that they deserve better and the conditions that they're in now are not ideal, that's when you can form a relationship to further educate them on what they do deserve. But didn't Amazon play people off against each other? And I have to say, watching the TV commercials, they say, oh my goodness, look at me. I had a member of my family who was sick, and now Amazon is giving me health benefits to include them. Or one I recall specifically, I wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to have an education. Ah, Amazon is there to help me with that. So how do you get through that kind of high-powered, slick advertisement and make people say, wait a minute, we, the workers, we can do better? Take it further, Angelica. Connor and Julian, join in. I want to know how you organized, because this was a long battle. This is a couple of years since you all got started. What I would say is that, so Amazon did a lot of stuff that backfired. Fortunately, I could relate to that story on the commercial because my mom, she's a nurse, right? So um, I would let a lot of people know, well, my mom's a part of a union, 1199, well-known union. And fortunately for them, they have health care, great health benefits, great union benefits in general. And so when you compare Amazon's health care plans, me personally, I pay $54 a week out of my paycheck for health care for me and my son. So when you compare that to my mom, who didn't have to pay that, um, I had health care until I was 26. And I explained all these things to an Amazon worker who's never been in a union. They become very, you know, very keen to the idea that, you know, we can get better, that knowledge is power, and just asking and retaining the information can get them a long way. Yeah, Angie's right in that they did a lot of stuff that uh, did completely backfire on them. They have this approach to talking to workers where it's almost like they infantilize us um, or like they, they think that we're stupid in their captive audience meetings where they would you know, bring people in and try to scare them away from voting for a union, they would be very explicit and say, you know, do your research, get the facts and vote no. Like, you know, do all your research and then don't do anything with it. Just do what we tell you. So a lot of their approaches did backfire on them because people didn't like that they were being instructed to make a, a particular choice. I mean, the way we overcame that was, like you said, it was a long campaign. It was an endurance test for us, uh, one-on-ones with hundreds and, and thousands of workers to just try to, you know, help them understand it's, it's not a political choice. It's just, are there things that can be improved about your working conditions right now? Are there things about your job that you would change? And do you right now have the power to change those things? And the answer is no. 
And then, the, you know, the next logical step is, well, how could you have the power? It's if we all united together and made these demands together, suddenly they would have to listen to us and take us seriously. I agree with everything that, that both of them said. I think, like, like that point about um, Amazon digging their own grave is really true. And I think that's also true on, like, a, a, a sort of labor level. Like, no one walks through the turnstiles of JFK 8 or LBJ5 and is, like, thrilled to be at work, right? It's not a good environment to be in. It's not fun work. And, it's, and they make it worse with all of the things that they try to pull. And really, when you have these conversations with workers, when you have these one-on-ones, that is what convinces people because it's, it's not about telling them like, oh, here's all the reasons to vote yes, or here's the ideology of, of the union or anything like that. It's not about union to them. It's about literally just oh, like listening, really, what it comes down to. I think effective organizing, especially in a, a grassroots scenario like this, is about listening and, and asking people the questions so that they start thinking about the fact that they're unhappy about the fact that they, they want things to change. Because I think the problem is people just get complacent. When you start questioning it, when you start realizing that things can get better, Amazon is radicalizing the workers just by having them do, do the business that they want. We're celebrating a victory here, but there's also going to be another election for another distribution center, which one of you works at. So what is the organizing that's going on now? What is the difference between that distribution center and JFK 8 and What's happening there, and are the issues the same? The other distribution center. That's a distribution, and, and, and JFK is a warehouse, right? Clarify that also. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's the building that I work at, LDJ Five uh, Sortation Center. It, it's the same thing. I think I think we've developed a really strong playbook. Every building is going to be different, so there's going to be slight different tactics in terms of the specific issues we're talking to workers about. But you know, like like Annie and Connor, like in the break rooms of JFK Eight, developed. I think like a phenomenal strategy to, to convince workers. And so I think we're just trying to borrow as much as we can from that and hopefully uh, have some of the JFK 8 organizers continue to do what uh, the other organizers were trying to do from the outside during the JFK 8 election. And you're about 1,500 there, and JFK was about 8,000. Is that the numbers? Yeah, 1,600 and other J5. You know, I mean, the magnitude of this organizing drive was incredible. We haven't really gotten the sense of the conditions and we haven't talked about the fact that one of the great things that comes from a union is that you have a grievance procedure. You have a mechanism to do something. I want you to tell us a little bit about the kind of work that each one of you did and how that informed your decision to go union. And Angelica, let's start with you and then Connor and Julian. When I first started at Amazon in 2018, I was an inbound and I was a sewer. And sewing, is, it's a very tedious job. Basically, I was, in my opinion, it's one of the jobs in the warehouse where you're literally like a robot. You know, there's like this three-step ladder. You have to put in, like, there's rates. And you would have to put in a certain amount of items in a pod for within an hour. And, and I remember when I first started out, it was probably like 200 items. But now I think the race went up to like 300, 350, right? When I had came back to Amazon, um, I got hired for outbound packer. And I would say that job is less shameless, but it's still very tedious. I would say, you know, the lack of having an option for the type of hours within the building. Because after a while, you, we kind of get used to the work. However, it's really the hours that they, you know, they sign us up for. They make us conform to that is really stressful, especially on the body. 
right now I'm RC shift. I'm 12 hour and 30 minute shifts with a 45 minute lunch break, three days a week consecutively. That is just not an ideal way to have workers work. You know, I think there should be more shifts to offer within the warehouse. And even if you want to go part time, you know, you run risk of not having your transfer approved, which is very unfortunate. They'll hire new people before they approve your transfer. That's something that Amazon was able to do because they ran on their own contract and they didn't have to worry about a union. Um, you have people traveling from different boroughs. Like me personally, I live on Staten Island, but I know people in my department who live in Harlem, who live in New Jersey, and they come all the way to Staten Island to go back home and get three, four hours of sleep. They risk losing their job because Amazon, they drill in people's head that this is one of the best paying warehouses. But in all reality, it's like they still don't care about their employees and, and the physical and mental health of them. Well, I, I'm going to pick on Connor next because actually one of the last times I saw Connor, he was getting busted. So, <laughs> so tell us about the conditions you faced and the treatment because I think you were a little bit understated in how vicious Amazon really was. What, what do you mean? Busted? I thought you were arrested. Oh, no, I wasn't one of the ones. Oh, you weren't one of the ones I, that was arrested. Yeah. I, I know I, Chris Small, I, your president, was. Yeah, and and Brett and, um, and Jason. But, yeah, Angie and I were there. We were watching it unfold. Uh, thankfully, uh, they didn't bring us to the station, too. What, I mean, what actually uh, happened? And part of our strategy for organizing the workers was um, we would you know, take some of the donations we brought in and we would hold uh, luncheons for the workers. And it was a great way for everybody to you know, feel well-fed and, um, and also an opportunity for them to come to us and get information about the union. We would do that in the break rooms. What would, what would happen was uh, Chris, who you know still doesn't have his job back, he's still an employee, so he would get the food for us. And, he right. would bring it and we should just lot. say for people who don't know, Chris Small was fired, was one of the prime organizers, and is now the president of the union, but he still is a fired worker. Ah, the yeah. irony of things. I'm sorry, continue. Yeah, he was illegally terminated in, in March of 2020 for protesting unsafe working conditions and to this day he still is fighting to get his job back which will happen uh i'm positive but you know we just don't know when he was bringing the food to us so that we could serve it to the workers and amazon didn't like that and so they went to accuse him of trespassing and we made the argument that you know it's a visitor lot we have doordash drivers come in all the time to bring lunch we have people's family members come to drop them off and, and wait in the parking lot so why are they singling out chris it was just to interfere with our organizing and then they didn't like that, so they left, and then they called the cops, and the, the cops said the same thing. You know, we're trespassing. We made the same argument, um, but we were about to leave, and then right as we were leaving and, and started arresting him, and then, you know, a, another worker came by and, you know, protested, said, you can't do that. Number one, this worker was disabled, who they were arresting, so they, they arrested that second worker, and then Chris was like, what are you guys doing? And they, they just roped him in and arrested him, too. So he wasn't even the first person they arrested. He was literally in the passenger seat of my car, uh, and we were ready to drive away when that happened. So it just goes to show that Amazon will use the police as a way to threaten and intimidate people who are union organizing. But the problem with the police is that you call them, 
and they're very unpredictable. You never know how they're going to respond to a, a situation. So I think that's another example of something that backfired in their faces because it just showed the workers in the building that Amazon really doesn't value the workers' rights and they'll do anything to stop what they say is uh, ineffective union. Your victory has, is reinvigorating the labor movement, but you still have a long way to go and a hard struggle in bargaining. How can people help you? People should get informed through your website and can make a donation. Yeah, I mean, until we negotiate a contract, we're not collecting dues from the workers, and everybody has to vote to approve that contract, so we got to make sure it's a good one. Otherwise, the union uh, will have no income. So right now, we're mainly on donations. We're trying to set up a, a shop soon so we can sell merchandise, we can sell ALU shirts. A lot of people have been asking for them. But also, I mean, we are... You know, a kind of a grassroots volunteer effort. If you're an Amazon worker listening to this, please definitely get involved. If you're an outside volunteer with a particular skill set, you want to contribute to us because, you know, we're all doing this for free. Everything we do, whether you're like a graphic designer or whatever, you know, it's, it's a community effort because, you know, whatever happens at Amazon affects all of us. So it's, it's up to everybody in the community to get involved and get behind this effort. And the website is? It's uh, AmazonLaborUnion.org. And you can also follow us on social media. Our Twitter is a good place to get information as well. It's at Amazon Labor. Julian, this is, for those of us who have been involved in organizing labor, involved in organizing union, we've watched for years as the union movement has really shriveled up. We've watched as there is business unionism, as union leaders very often became fat cats themselves. Here's a real grassroots effort from the bottom up, and you have created a spark of energy that truly, truly has been heard around the world. And I want you to give us a sense of how important you think your effort was in routing Jeff Bezos, in routing Amazon, one of the wealthiest companies and one of the largest employers in the world. How important is it what you all did? Julian? I think it's incredibly important, right? I think that's why we're all doing it. If we didn't think it was important, we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't be spending sleepless nights trying to make it happen. You know, like, like Chris Smalls, the president, he, he's been working nonstop at this for two years now. I think every single one of us has put our 100 in it. When it comes down to it, I don't want to say that this is, this is like what we've done just now is is like the end of the victory right because it's, it's frankly the beginning of the fight we've unlocked the door into the maze We're not out of it yet it is important and it's, it's monumental because at least as far as i can tell this is the first time we've seen genuine worker power worker-led power in decades and you know when you're talking about business unionism this is the fight against that this is the fight against not just sort of like bad pay or, or any one singular issue this is the fight for workers to actually have a voice in their in their workplace again and in their unions again, long term, hopefully, what we'll see from this is is the growth of a new type of worker power that that I think could be truly revolutionary in this country. And Angelica, what does it mean for women also to have been able to unionize this place? Because women went through horrific conditions, some of which you described. So. How important do you think this is to women, to single heads of household, to to women workers? Oh, I think it was it's been 
incredibly important. Just seeing my, myself and women, you know, get together in a community and stick up for each other. It's been a, a real emotional roller coaster. The best thing we got from it was um, understanding each other even more and being there for each other even more. Being able to share our stories, like I said, I had to be vulnerable and tell my story many times. But I know a lot of us, we're, we're scared of judgment, right? And so that's what, but in, 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 that's how we um, bonded. And to keep those relationships and, and memories, I think um, for this historic movement, um, I think it's one of the best things I've ever, I've ever felt in my life. Connor Spence, Julian Mitchell, Angelica Maldonado, you're going to wind up with a fabulous contract because we're all there in a labor community movement to support our magnificent Amazon workers. Thank you for your inspiration. Thank you for your spark in rejuvenating a workers' movement. Thank you to Ken Nash and Rosenberg of Building Bridges, your community and labor report in New York City for making that interview available. There's a link to the full unedited April 4th episode of Building Bridges on the Labor Express Radio Facebook page at laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. We need to take a station ID break, but when we return, we'll hear about another successful union election in New York City at the Soho REI store. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. There have been a host of historic labor organizing victories in recent months. Back in February, we covered the recent union election victories at Starbucks locations around the country. There's more than 20 of those now. In the first half of the program, we discuss what I think may become one of the most important uh, of these new victories, if it spreads, the victory at the Staten Island Amazon warehouse, which I do think uh, you know, has a possibility of changing the whole landscape of labor if uh, if Amazon becomes unionized. And back in March, there was another breakthrough union election in the retail sector that has not received the same attention. But it's another important indicator of the possibilities for rebuilding the labor movement under the current conditions. Retail is notoriously difficult for union organizing and as a result has been largely ignored by the mainstream of the labor movement for decades now. But the victories at Starbucks and now REI, uh, which stands for Recreational Equipment Inc., if you don't know, demonstrate that the current climate of rising worker militancy may be changing the possibilities for organizing in retail. As I talked about extensively on this program last fall, historically periods of low unemployment and high labor demand are a perfect time for workers to go on the offensive and demand real concessions from the boss, from the economic elite, and from the powers that be. Even a brief look at labor history shows a close correlation to these labor shortage periods and periods of growth for the labor movement. The current period is apparently no exception. And add to that the mistreatment of essential workers during the pandemic, the rise of the cost of living due to the current historic rise of inflation, and the rising culture of worker militancy, and you got an exciting dynamic situation in which one starts to think that the old slogan of another world is possible might actually be true. Much of this sentiment is reflected, I think, in the following interview of REI employee Stephen Buckley, who was one of the rank-and-file organizers of the successful union election at the Soho REI outlet in New York City. I'm an REI co-op member myself who spent quite a bit of money, at least in the rare periods where I have any money, 
Uh, I spent quite a bit of money over the years at REI stores. So this victory is, in a way, especially exciting for me. The interview comes from a really terrific podcast called Be Labored, put out by Descent Magazine. They're one of our sister programs on the Labor Radio Podcast Network. And on their March 25th episode, host Michelle Chen interviewed Stephen Buckley about the election victory. I can only include a brief edited excerpt of the full interview on tonight's WLPN broadcast. There'll be a longer version of the interview on the Labor Express podcast version. And of course, the full interview can be heard at the Belabored website. And I'll provide links for the Belabored website. And when the uh, podcast is up, that link will be available to at laborexpress.org. Here is Michelle Chen interviewing Stephen Buckley about the REI election victory in New York City. Retail has historically been one of the hardest sectors to organize in, with its high turnover and precarious workforce and big employers that can invest huge amounts of time and money in crushing union drives. So in this episode, we're looking at one recent example of how retail workers in New York City are bucking that trend. The workers at REI, a retail chain and consumer co-op that specializes in outdoor gear and sportswear, recently voted overwhelmingly to form a union at one of the flagship stores in downtown Manhattan's Soho neighborhood. Like a typical large corporation, REI tried to deter workers from organizing with heaps of anti-union propaganda, while also trying to frame itself as a friendly employer who just wants the best for its workers. The union busting underscored the irony that REI, as a co-op, prides itself on its progressive values and community spirit when it comes to issues like climate change and promoting racial equity. When it comes to labor issues, however, it's a different story. We spoke to Stephen Buckley, a retail sales specialist, member of the REI Union Soho Organizing Committee, and now a member of of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, or RWDSU. We talked about how the store's workers dealt with the anti-union resistance and how they managed to turn the crisis of the pandemic into an organizing opportunity. I started at REI in September of last year, so I've only been there about six months, which in my department as a, as a veteran staff member, there's a, there's a joke in, our, in the clothing team that the average tenure is uh, three months. Um, but yeah, I started in September and I think I was um, approached by a coworker, like like a lot of folks are during the quiet moments of organizing, you know, a handful of weeks into the job. And I was immediately on board just because, you know, working conditions at any job where you had to be in person every single day have just been dreadful the past two years. Like I... I, I I don't think it's just retail, but I think the broader, like if you have to work in a frontline job, it has just been a, a miserable existence. You're chronically short-staffed. You don't have basic materials to do your job, sometimes due to supply chain shortages, but a lot of times just due to like the flagrant cost cutting that has kind of ruled the day during COVID. You know, what appealed to me about it was like, we just need a voice in our job. We need to be able to self-advocate for safe working conditions. It was also about, you know, two weeks into two or three weeks into my job that like one of my coworkers got their foot run over by a pallet jack. And like that is a reality of working retail. It's like you can get significantly injured. Like I think people forget that we have to move 500 pound pallets of product as part of our jobs. Um, and so I think for me, you know, it was that plus 
working through a pandemic where we were not really being well supported and just just experiencing the, the misery of very demanding aggressive customers and just wanting to be able to have a support structure in place to you know advance our needs and address both like our economic concerns for sure but also like have a formalized voice in the workplace because otherwise you like you know like it's cliche but like if you're not at the table you're on the menu and like we all felt like we were on the menu at work yeah um can you Talk a little bit about uh, REI as a workplace and as a company. Um, it's you know quite a unique company. It's it's, it, um, it's set up <laughs> as a as a consumer co op, as I understand. It definitely like attracts a certain clientele, and I guess there's sort of like a subculture around it. Can you just explain what REI does and why it's maybe like a little bit different from your typical retail workplace? Yeah, so REI is is very unique. So REI, like you mentioned, is a is a consumer or a, or a buyer's co-op, as it were, um, which means that technically we are owned by our co-op members. We are a mostly outdoors-focused retailer, um, pretty much exclusively. So we sell everything from bikes and skis to all of the clothing you could need to do pretty much anything in the outdoors from skiing down a mountain to going camping. But as, you know, a, a co-op that has, you know, a, a, a professed core set of values, it attracts both on the staff side and the consumer side, a more progressive, um, oftentimes left-leaning workforce and clientele. It is a it's a company that people feel good to shop at because they're like, I know that REI does the right thing on environmental issues. Um, you know, they like we publicly advocate and actually encourage our members to engage around a bunch of different issues from protecting public lands to um, you know, increasing equity and diversity in the outdoors. So like REI as a as a co-op really tr- at least outwardly facing has really tried to do a lot of the right things to improve society through life outdoors and we are all part of that mission as employees of the co-op what that means is that we take our work incredibly seriously um, people come to rei instead of ordering things on amazon or you know, wherever they can get it cheapest because they know there's going to be knowledgeable employees that help them figure out what they need. And that's everything from like, I've outfit, I work in the clothing department. I've outfitted people to go to Antarctica numerous times or to through hike the AT or to just go skiing for the first time, you know, and like help them really figure out what their needs are. Um, You know, people come expecting a certain level of care and quality that we really love to provide. on top of they come because they know that they're supporting a business that is not beholden to Wall Street, that reinvests its profits. Like employees have a profit sharing arrangement um, that we get once a year. And that's all employees, like even me as a, as a sales associate. Uh, you know, I get a, a share of the company profits at the end of the, at, at the you know, when, when members get their dividends or 
rewards on their um, on their purchases. So it's 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 a really beautiful kind of place, and it's really incredible to have a, a work environment where you're all kind of bought in on the idea of a life outdoors and bought in on a culture of, of trying to reinvest and improve society writ large. Um, that's kind of like what the vibe is supposed to be. When I, when I Googled REI Union, the first thing that came up was the website that they created to, like, to uh, educate uh, their employees about <laughs> the consequences of unionization. From what I've read, it seems like pretty standard um, anti-union uh, propaganda type stuff. So did that very sort of conventional corporate response surprise you at all when, you know, when you heard it coming from the, the head of a, of a company that purports to be you know, very progressive and to adhere to certain like collective values and stuff. I was not surprised at all. Um, personally, I was disappointed. Um, we knew, we knew at minimum they weren't going to voluntarily recognize the union, even though we asked for it repeatedly. Um, and we, we also knew we could win the vote. So it didn't, it didn't matter that they wouldn't um, respect that request. Um, I wasn't surprised because you know, I this is the same company that when I had COVID, I had to fight with them to get my legally required paid family leave. You know, this is the same this is the same company that makes part time workers, even if they're scheduled for full time hours, uh, wait a year to get health insurance. This is the same company that has a three minute late policy, which uh, that's your window is three minutes, and and you know we live in New York City where. For the past two years, 10 to 20% of trains just didn't run. Like, like that's only just started to sort of get better. Um, and so this is a company that, that for all of its purported values, and, and a lot of them they do live up to, um, is not often supportive enough of employee needs and really understanding what it takes to to make the all of those things possible like i don't think our ceo eric arts understands the reality that to sell the products that we do it requires us getting screamed at threatened harassed by customers that they don't really do much about um and i i thought the union busting podcast you know from uh from the land of the coastal Salish people was, was really well put as far as where this company is failing in its values, like doing a land acknowledgement in your union busting podcast is just the most on brand for REI thing ever. Like it, it just does not like it, they're trying to do the right thing and just choosing to take a left turn when it comes to what workers actually need in their stores. It's disheartening because, you know, we didn't, we didn't want this to be a campaign about REI. You know, we didn't want this to be a campaign about their hypocrisy. We wanted this campaign to be about how do we have rights and dignity and respect in the workplace? How can we come, how can we, set forth a contract that 
is mutually decided by you know workers and management that addresses the needs we have and allows us to feel like we're really we're truly living up to the values that we purport to have as as a co-op and we just couldn't do that because our CEO decided that they didn't want to do that and that kind of really it it wasn't surprising but it was disheartening and I think for a lot of people, and I think one of the reasons why we won by such a huge landslide was people realized in a very specific and deep way that regardless of the values we have as a company, if you're going to take, if you're going to try to take power back from HQ, they're going to fight you tooth and nail. And they felt that through the union busting campaign and they decided, you know what? I'm going to live my values, even though I love this place to work. And I I love working at REI. Like I I genuinely love my job. I love helping customers. I I love unloading trucks and pulling 500 pound pallets full of bikes and and skis. Like I love it. But at the same time, you know, we need to have a really improved relationship with the way we make decisions in the store and as a company and there needs to be employee input on every single policy that comes out of HQ. And the only way we're ever going to get that in a real tangible way is with a union. Yeah. So at the end of the day, when you get down to the brass tacks of it, uh, you know, HQ is going to behave like a retail employer. So when it became clear that you were facing that level of resistance, did it come down to the store level? Were, were, I mean, did you have... Uh, uh, any workers facing any direct retaliation or any kind of intimidation on the job? For sure. Um, and some of this, um, I will be intentionally broad to not, um, you know, identify any of the people who are clearly retaliated against, you know, just for their privacy. And so they don't get further retaliated against, but we definitely felt a, a harsh, presence. Um, HQ sent at any given time, there was at three, there was at least three executive level people in the store and it was a rotating cast of characters. Um, There were more staying at a hotel down the street. And just for clarity, you can't find a hotel in Soho for less than like three or $400 a night. So they were literally choosing to like, spend a week of our pay a night for one of these HQ employees, these executive level folks to come in and target and bully us. This is, this includes like they sent the chief commercial officer to the store, like, you know, he's an ex Amazon executive like this, you know, so it was, it was the standard playbook, right? It was, send a lot of managers in, send HQ staff in, have our managers pulled out of the store to sit through union busting trainings. Um, They didn't say that's where they went, but they just happened to go to meetings at the hotel with the HQ people and attorneys, which like I read that as, oh, you're getting trained in union busting. Great. Um, But like people were pulled into, uh, into multiple meetings like hour long like being berated about how a union was against their own interests and isn't going to fix any of the things they need fixed 
people were, you know, targeted over things that were never really enforced. Like we have a vague cell phone policy, but it's not really like, so like if you're not on the phone, uh, but you're just like checking a text or something like that, that's not, that's not normally a huge issue. So long as you're like not ignoring customers, but like our store is three floors and a manager came downstairs, came from downstairs all the way to the to three floors up to, to target an employee because uh, they were watching the camera and saw that this person was just checking a text and they walked up and told them like, you need to get off the phone. Right. And there was no customers in, in this person's department. So it's like petty things like that on top of, you know, massive threats to like people were in, in individual meetings were threatened with losing a lot, losing healthcare for their families. We've had, that was one of the big things is like people who are parents who had, you know, children that require that, you know, that rely on their health insurance, which like we actually have a decent health insurance plan if you can get on it. That you were really told like, well, the union's going to come in and make you take the union health insurance plan and, you're not going to be able to take your take care of your kids. There's nothing we could do about it. Like, and also some more, you know, vicious and cruel threats. Um, and and it just really was, it was sad. You know, I, I was I was as someone who was a very vocal, public facing. Um, union supporter like they mostly left me alone with a lot of those things but like I had one of the HR directors corner me in a fitting room and, and argue with me about an HR complaint I filed against my manager uh, for 40 minutes while I was working the fitting room on a very busy day that's when the H HR representative thought it was a great idea to have a very personal conversation just to like make me uncomfortable you know, I was pulled into numerous one-on-ones where they would argue with you about kind of everything and also pretend to want to address everything but not do anything about it. Um, and so it's just very, like, you know, on top of captive audience meetings, which went well into the evening. I, I was in multiple that went past 10 p.m. Um, because I worked the night shift. But, like, that's not a time to have a, a conversation about things that's the time to be berated and that's just what they did is they just berated us and told us why we're wrong and why we're petty and and why we've been misled like they really leaned into this idea that we were too stupid to know better um and too like we weren't intelligent enough to know anything because they kept saying you were you were promised things that the union can't deliver and like the union didn't promise anything but a chance to improve our working conditions. And at the end of the day, like, you know, like we chose to work with RWDSU, but RWDSU is not the union. The workers at REI Soho are. And we collectively decide on all of our, you know, needs. Like we, we elect the bargaining committee. They're account- there are coworkers and they're accountable to us as workers. Like we vote on our contracts. Like it's, 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 it's us. It's, it's not some third party lunacy that, that they tried to make it out. And so luckily we didn't see a lot of, we didn't see anybody get terminated during the drive for any union related things. 
Um, they found like nitpicky things to harass people about. But I think that part of the reason they didn't fire anybody is they're so short staffed they couldn't afford to. Like I think if they thought they could run the store and fire a bunch of us, they would. But they know that they can't because in the month of December, like 30 people quit. And we're not a like we're not a big enough store that that doesn't hurt. Yeah, it's interesting to just to hear you talk about this is a place where you, you know, overall you love working, but it sounds like uh, at least <laughs> during the union drive, they tried to make your days at work feel kind of hellish. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of union busting and every, everywhere it's, it's, they want you to feel uncomfortable and, and, and feel miserable when you come to work so that you burn out and that you won't keep fighting. Um, it's intentional and we knew it and we were openly talking about like, they are intentionally making this worse than it needs to be so that people blame the union for making things bad. And they kept talking about how the union is divisive and union supporters are divisive. Um, they made like, they, they accused us of doxing somebody with no proof and never did an investigation into who was doxed. Um, nobody was pulled into an HR like investigatory interview or anything about that. They told us that we were harassing and bullying people into wearing union. Yes. Buttons on our vests. And I was just like, what? Like, like literally no, anybody who wanted a button just, just asked for it and they were given one. Like it wasn't, but they kept talking about these things as if they were happening basically to sow confusion. And, you know, they were doing this two or three times a day. And throughout this time, you, I imagine, I mean, the organizers must have been working to sort of inoculate people and help them cope with this, or at least, you know, navigate the confusion that they were trying to sow, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, like some of the specifics of how they did that, you know, are, are between me and my coworkers, just to be totally frank. But, you know, every, I'm going to be honest, I cried after one of the captive audience meetings. Like I cried in my coworker's arms because it was so horrible. Um, it really hurt me personally, and it hurt a lot of our coworkers. And our job was before we went public, we really focused a lot of energy on making sure people understood what we expected HQ to do and their response to be. And, you know, the first time that, you know, they ran an anti-union meeting in, a, in our morning huddles. We have huddles before the store opens. Um, <laughs> like, I remember getting the text from one of my coworkers. I wasn't at the morning huddle. And uh, they were just like, they literally must have, like, you know, like, read the, the like, inoculation plan that you gave us. Because they said all of the things you said they would say. Because their playbook is tired. Like, the union-busting playbook is tired. And it's tired because it works. Because, like, gaslighting and manipulation and, you know, misinformation works. They keep doing it. But, like, we really tried to make sure people knew beforehand. And then throughout, like, you know, there was a number of times where, where after a really bad meeting, you know, we would talk to, you know, co-workers you're close with one-on-one and just be like hey are you okay like the number of hey are you okay conversations that I had during this drive um is really startling and I think it made us closer as 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 co-workers and as people who again like we want the store to be successful like we want the co-op to be successful 
but also like we want to make sure that our coworkers can feel good about coming to work. Thank you to the Belabored Podcast from Descent Magazine, one of our fellow programs on the Labor Radio Podcast Network. The full interview of Stephen Buckley, the REI employee there involved in that uh, union election, the successful union election, the full interview can be heard on their original podcast, which is linked up at laborexpress.org. The podcast version of this program of Labor Express will have a longer uh, excerpt from that interview as well. And so in a, that'll be up in a couple of days. And if you go to laborexpress.org, you'll be able to find the link to that as well. That's all the time we have for tonight's program, but always find out more at laborexpress.org. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBW Local 1220. The expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers and not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. Songs our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. <laughs>